Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship. Scripture says if we regard iniquity in our heart, the Lord will not hear us. So Scripture also says that if we confess, which means to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father, then he will forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At that point, we're cleansed, forgiven, restored to fellowship. We recover the filling ministry of God the Holy Spirit for our forward movement, forward advance in spiritual growth. And so we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all that you have provided for us, but above all because you have provided us a free salvation. It is not dependent upon anything we do or anything that is based on our character or our own efforts. It's based on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. There he paid the penalty for every sin in human history. All we need do is to trust in him, to believe on him, to recognize that that he is the one who Uh, enables us to have salvation. And as we trust in him, then God the Holy Spirit uh, regenerates us, imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Christ, declares us justified, gives us eternal life, and about 35 or 36 other things that are all ours forever and ever because of what Christ has done on the cross. Now, Father, we pray as we go back over Genesis that you help us to pull these things together, remind us of the doctrines we've studied, of their importance and significance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis is the book of beginnings. We looked last time, we began our review, and we saw that there are two basic parts to Genesis. The first part is the first 11 chapters, the most debated, the most controversial, the most significant portion of Scripture, Genesis 1 through 11. We can summarize it as four events. This is the primeval history of mankind. The second part covers Genesis 12 through Genesis 50. This is more biographical, slows down. It covers a uh, much shorter period of time. It's the primeval history or the patriarchal history for Israel. You can summarize the first 11 chapters under four things. What are they? Oh, oh! I didn't know there was going to be a test. <laughs> Nobody said that. What are the four events? Creation, fall, flood, Babel. See how much you know? You've got the first 11 chapters of Genesis memorized. Creation, fall, flood, Babel. That so many doctrines hang just on those four events. Creation, we... We go back, we think about creation, we think about the omnipotence of God, the sovereignty of God, 
the holiness of God. We think about his his omnipresence. We think about his holiness and his righteousness in terms of the command to Adam and Eve not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we also learn about man. We learn that man is in the created in the image and likeness of God. We learn about the first three divine institutions for mankind. We learn about volition. We learn about marriage. And we learn about family. These are all established prior to, even though family is not enacted, there is no family, but the divine institution is all set up prior to the fall. So they have to do with the purpose of man irregardless of sin. So the first three divine institutions are established. Uh, primarily, the most important is his volitional responsibility, which undergirds everything else. Uh, next time, we'll get into the second part, just so you can prepare for your pop quiz next week. For people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. See if you can just say those eight things. You have control of the first 50 chapters of the Bible. In fact, that was the first question that was asked of uh, David Rosen at his ordination, and, and um, he hadn't listened to this. So see, he just he did a good job, but you guys could do better. Real simple, real concise. Now, last time I had this chart up here, and I got some criticism from this chart. Some people just thought they were they were very very sharp, and they had out outfoxed me, caught me in an error. The title for the slide was Eleven Toledotes. Now, I modified the slide just so people can learn how to count a little more clearly. We had a prologue. Now, that's not a toledote. That's just the prologue. Toledote, for those of you who uh, haven't been in here, a toledote is a word that's translated generation or history or records. You have this uh, statement made periodically in Genesis. These are the records of the heavens and the earth. These are the records of Adam. These are the records of Noah. These are the records of uh, Terah. These are the records of various other individuals and it has to do with uh, it's sort of a heading for the next major section in uh, in Genesis so these all line up and the first introduction gives us the creation of the universe the heavens and the earth and it ends on the seventh day God taking a day of rest not because he was tired but to show that the work was completed and that's the prologue then verse 4 says this is the generation of the heavens and the earth, or and the, and the meaning of that, as I pointed out, is this is what happened to what God created. And two four through four sixteen covers the creation of man, the institution of the mandate in the garden, the violation of the mandate in terms of the fall, and then what immediately happened as a result of that, as it works itself out in human history with the Cain and Abel story. So that's the first toledote. Second Toledotes 5, 1 to 6, 8, that's, this is what happens to Adam. Then your third Toledot, this is what happens to Noah, 6, 9 to 9, 29. Then your fourth Toledot, this is what happens to Noah's sons. This is the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then we come back and just focus on Shem. This is what happens to Shem, eleven ten to 26. That's going to be your fifth Toledot, and we're going to count them up. Your sixth Toledot is 11.27 to 25.11. This is the Toledot of Terah, Abram's father. So this is what happens to Terah. And focus there is going to be on Abram. Then you have a brief Toledot on Ishmael. And what happens to Ishmael in 25.12 to 18? This is going to be your seventh Toledot. 
Your eighth total dose, Isaac, 25.19 to 35.29. And then this is where people got caught. See, that's not 36.1 to 37.9. That's 36.1 and 37.9. Those are two mentions of the word Toledot, and it's the Toledot of Esau. The first Toledot there is 36.1 to 8, and that is primarily what happened to Esau, his marriage and having uh, children. And then the second section from 37.9 on, and this should be, the last part should be 38.2, that is a typo. 37.9 should be, that's what happens, the rest of that chapter just deals with uh, what happens to Esau's descendants. And then in 38.2 to 50.26, we have the Toledot of Jacob. See, that next to last one, I just incorporated two with the, because there's a Toledot, the words mentioned, 36.1, 37.9. That's what caught people. I had about four people say, that last slide, I counted 10 Toledots, and it says 11. Okay, that's the structure. That's the internal literary structure. One of the great things about the Bible is you realize it's great literature. It has internal structure indicated by vocabulary, indicated by uh, different grammatical devices to indicate how the writer has organized his material. It's not just written haphazardly. It shows a very tight, uh, very well thought out, very logical uh, development. Now, we talked a little bit also last time about the first major issue that you start getting into in Genesis that people are very concerned about today, and that has to do with the age of the earth. And I pointed out last time that up until the advent of historical geology in the uh, 18th century, you had nearly everybody, geologists included, believing in a literal worldwide Noahic flood, believing in the and the dates, the numbers that are given in Scripture in terms of the uh, ages of the of the men listed in the in the genealogies in Genesis chapter five and Genesis chapter eleven, and coming to a a conclusion that the earth could not be more than about six or seven thousand years old, and that creation occurred sometime around four thousand to four forty five hundred B.C. But then you had the the uh, introduction of human viewpoint, pagan cosmologies, and we're going to operate on pure empiricism and not believe the Bible, and historical geology started generating its own theories on the age of the earth, that the age of the earth was maybe 40 or 45,000 years of age. It wasn't that old in the mid to late 1700s. So in the early 1800s, you had a uh, Scottish Presbyterian theologian who was in his generation and in his uh, environment uh, considered to be uh, the greatest, most well-known systematic theologian of his day by the name of Thomas Chalmers. He was like the John Walvert or Lewis Berry Chafer or the John Calvin of, or Martin Luther of his generation, the Scottish Presbyterian Church, one of the most well-known, well-published uh, theologians and pastors. And he said, ah, i got a solution here. If there's We've always held, or many people have held, that there's some kind of a time gap between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2 where the fall of Satan occurred. Ah, that must be where all these historical ages took place. So he's a, he, he assumes science was right in their empirical observations. And so he compromised. What was the problem? Was science right? No, they were dead wrong. The earth's 
what, three million years old. It's not just 45,000, right? See, empiricism always changes because there's some new piece of data that can be discovered next week, and it's going to change your conclusions. He didn't stick with the eternal veracity of the Word of God. And so you had uh, what I call the development of a compromise view, which I call the old age gap view. And that held to the, very similar to my view, just I don't have as many years in there. You start off with Eden, the Garden of God, which is Ezekiel 28. We'll study Sunday morning. That's where uh, Satan or Lucifer, pre-fall, had his abode. God apparently had had some sort of presence on the earth. And then there's a judgment when Lucifer sins and the earth is plunged into darkness. That's why Genesis 1-2 says darkness was on the face of the earth. Darkness is frequently associated with evil. And, and I pointed out when we went through this study back at the beginning of Genesis that there is a mirror reflection between the beginning of Genesis and the end of Revelation. When the new heavens and new earth is created, there is no sun. There's no need for that illumination on the earth because God dwells on the earth and the glory of God illuminates the earth. So dark, there's no darkness. There's also no salt sea in the new heavens and the new earth. The salt sea is a picture of, of that which is disturbing, that which is uncontrollable, that which is chaotic. And so it has negative overtones in the scripture. And then the text also says that it was tohu babohu in the Greek, or it was without form and void. It's formless, chaotic, and that terminology is frequently, though not always, associated with the after effects of divine judgment in passages in Isaiah and in Jeremiah. In fact, Isaiah says the earth was not created a tohu. So we develop from that the view that there's some sort of a judgment that occurs in Genesis 1-2 that would relate to the fall of Satan and then God is going to reestablish, recreate the earth. Now, what happens is you have these old agers who want to t- think that science has something to say about the age of the earth. Now, if you really want to get into this, uh, I'm not a, this, that's not my field, but Institute for Creation Research has published the findings of their uh, RATE study group. RATE stands for Real Age of the Earth. It's an, a- an acronym for Real Age of the Earth. And they have come out with both a, a DVD, which we've shown here when I've been gone, and a very technical, uh, about two-inch thick hardcover book on the findings of that study, evaluating all the different mechanisms that evolutionary scientists and geologists use to date the universe, showing that they, they don't agree there's massive inconsistencies and problems in all of the dating mechanisms that evolutionists use to come up with an old age view of the earth. But in contrast to the fact that there are many indications within science that the earth must be relatively young. So the time between the original earth and the restoration in Genesis 1-3 doesn't have to be long. It can be just a few decades, a few hundred years, and I believe it was a rather short time. And then there's a seven-day restoration that occurs, and the stars are created not until the fourth day. The text is clear. They don't just appear. They're created. So what you have prior to that is a space-time universe with basically one abode, and that is the original Earth. Then at right at the end, and so let me chart this out. So you start off with original creation. Then there's darkness, chaos, judgment on Satan and the fallen angels. There's no death. Why? 
Death comes as a result of sin, both spiritual death and physical death. Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 make it very clear that death uh, doesn't come until there's sin. So therefore, there can't be a pre-Adamic race. There can't be fossils. There can't be stratification taking place in that period because fossils are formed from dead things. If nothing dies prior to uh, Adam's sin, then you can't stick the fossilization. You can't stick dinosaurs. You can't stick Neanderthal men or Lucy. By the way, Lucy's just a just a just a different chimp. And there, the reason I say that, for those of you who don't know, is there's an exhibit. I'm not talking about I love Lucy. <laughs> this is the the chimp they found in Tanzania. There's a there's an exhibit of uh, the eight or nine bones they found that are the basis for her construction down at the uh, Natural Science Museum here in Houston for the next uh, couple of months. But all dead things come after the after the fall. And then you have, so you just have this time lapse there for Satan's fall, and then there's seven days of restoration concluding with the day of rest in Genesis 2-3. I put this chart up at the end last week. You're not going to get it all down. You can find it. There's a book called uh, The Early Earth by John Morris. He's got an appendix in the back. There's several other things. You can find information on this by either going to the Institute for Creation web- website, which is icr.org, or you can go to the Answers in Genesis website, and that's just Answers in Genesis, no space between the words. And they will have different places where you can find this kind of information. And this is just the, the, the basic assumption I pointed out last time underlying all dating mechanisms is that the rate of decay that occurs today is the rate of decay that has always occurred. In other words, it's anti-catastrophism. Christianity and the Bible says that there was a catastrophic event that occurred in Genesis chapter 6 called the Noahic Flood that was a worldwide geologic event that changed the shape of the earth. It lasted for approximately a year. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights, and the waters went up for about another 180 year, 180 days, and then they, they sort of stabilized for a while, and then they came down, and it took a while for them to recede. But from the day Noah went on the ark till the day he got off the ark was 367 days, one year for them, one year and one week. So uh, that, that much water covering the face of the earth is going to reshape things just a little bit, and it's going to bury a tremendous amount of, of life forms in sedimentary rock. And so what you would expect, if the Bible is true, is to go anywhere on the face of the planet and dig down through sedimentary rock and find evidence of dead things that got trapped in the muck. Hmm. What do you find? You find millions of dead things trapped in the muck all over the earth uh, that were la- that was laid down by water, even on tops of mountains. And so this is just evidence of, of the truth of the Bible. But uh, to me, one of the most fascinating studies that I ever saw and read was a monograph that was written by Dr. Thomas Barnes, who at the time, he's gone to be with the Lord since then, but in the late 70s he was the head of the physics department at University of Texas, El Paso, and he uh, did this study based on the measurements of the strength of the Earth's magnetic sphere. 
And every year for about the last 150 or so years, they've measured the strength of the Earth's magnetic sphere, and they can plot this on a graph. And what they've seen is that there's been this gradual, slow uh, decay of the strength of the Earth's magnetic sphere. Well, if you can plot that over a period of 150 years, then you can extrapolate backwards, and you can predict on the basis of the evolutionist assumption that everything decays at the same rate, you could extrapolate back that on the basis of their assumption that the strength of the Earth's magnetic sphere 10,000 B.C. would have been so strong that no life could have existed on planet Earth, and at 15 to 18,000 B.C., the Earth would have imploded. So on the basis of the decay of the Earth's magnetic field, uh, the Earth, in terms of being able to support life, couldn't be any more than 10,000 years old. Um, there are many other... Uh, ways you can measure different things that I've listed up here, and they lead from uh, dates as short as 100. The Earth has only been around for 100 years to the Earth being around for a couple of million years. So there's no consistency anywhere in these sort of, of uh, time clocks. Then we looked at the basic structure. Then the first three days, God uh, sets up the different areas of habitation. He forms the earth, and then he fills it. Uh, day, day one, he establishes light. It's not light that is focused. It's just light. Light is both has visible and invisible qualities. Light is just a binding element in, in the universe. He separates light from darkness. There's no sun yet. There's no stars. There's no moon. That's created on day four. Day two, he created the atmosphere, separated the waters above from the waters below. On day five, he's going to fill the uh, atmosphere, put creatures in the air, in the, the birds of the sky, and he's going to put creatures in the water and the oceans and the rivers. And on day three, he separates the seas from the continents. There's dry land that appears, uh, there's vegetation, and on the sixth day, he fills that environment with land creatures and man, so there's a perfect parallelism and a perfect structure. Now, what you find today in terms of aberrant Christianity is you find people like Dr. Hugh Ross, and he's on TV. You can watch him on TBN. He's on every now and then. He has a show. But uh, And there are others. There's called progressive creationists, and one of their, the things that they try to argue is that this doesn't refer to literal days. This refers merely to a literary structure. And so they're, they're, and then there's others who try to say, well, these days are separated by uh, billions of years. You had day one when certain things happen, then there's uh, several thousand years that go by, or several million years that go by, then there's day two, and then there's day three, and each day is separated by uh, millions of years. What's important is the Bible presents this as seven literal 24-hour consecutive days. You have to say all that. They are seven literal 24-hour days, and they are consecutive, one after the other. And there is today only one professor in the Hebrew department at Dallas Seminary, that's the Old Testament department, who believes in, in the, that these are seven literal 24-hour consecutive days. But my, my, how things change. There wasn't a single professor when I was there that doubted that. So things have somewhat uh, deteriorated. Okay, that just kind of reviewed what we went over last time. What I want to talk about 
indicated last time is as we go through this review, I want to highlight a couple of particular doctrines I didn't spend a lot of time on the first time through. And just in our review, I want to bring these out. And what I want to focus on is language and sort of trace language through Genesis. And what we see in the first chapter is this emphasis on God speaking each day begins, and then God said, then God said, God speaks, and immediately things come into existence. And then we come to the sixth day when God creates man. Now, I want us to think a little bit about what actually happens as the scripture records it on the sixth day. When God speaks to man on the sixth day, man immediately understands precisely what God is saying. Now, the speaking of God implies certain things. First of all, in the mind of God, there already existed a vocabulary, a grammar, and a syntax. That was already embedded in the mind of God. To speak at all presupposes order and organization. It presupposes that words have set meanings. It presupposes categories. That's why, you know, we often talk about the importance of categorizing Scripture and categorizing doctrine because this is embedded in the very concept of man, the very concept of creation. God said when he created the various animals, the um, fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and the beasts of the field, they procreated after their kind. So categories are embedded in the creation itself. They are, uh, and they're presupposed in the mind of God because words imply that they mean one thing and there's boundaries. They, they don't necessarily bleed over into something else. They don't, they can't just mean anything to anybody. Now that's what modern man wants to try to say, but he can't live consistently with that. He, he, the writers who write that words can mean anything don't want you to apply that principle to what they are saying. Just think about that. Because then you could make what they're saying mean something different. So they can't live. And that's one of the principles I want to show is that fallen man, no matter how much he hates God, he can't even say he hates God without presupposing the absolutes of a creator God universe, which is sort of the irony of uh, evolution in modern man. That's why the Bible says those that say there's no God are fools. So in the mind of God, there already existed a vocabulary, grammar, and syntax. Now, let's think about that a little bit. Since God is omniscient, God doesn't increase or decrease in knowledge, right? So therefore, God, there wasn't a time when God didn't have a vocabulary, grammar, and syntax, and didn't have words, and didn't have a language in his thinking. He always, it was always there, because he doesn't increase or decrease in knowledge. And God is immutable. God never changes. And so this whole concept of language is embedded in the very core of the mind of God, we might say. And this is exactly what the Scripture says, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was feelings. No. In the beginning was experience. No. In the beginning was 
the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that Greek word that's translated word is the word logos, which has a wide range of meanings, but it encapsulates all of this, this idea of, of reason and logic. That's why the word lo, our English word logic comes from the Greek word logos, logic. It's the same root. That language itself presupposes logic. I mean, when you talk grammar, it presupposes a logic for there to be meaning if you put two or three propositions or thoughts together, string them together, there has to be a a logical connection for meaning to be communicated. So all of this is presupposed. When God starts talking to Adam, Adam already is hardwired. And we might say that he's got, he already has the software imprinted on his brain to understand, comprehend, and correctly interpret what God is saying to him. Even though God doesn't have to give him a grammar and syntax book to understand what God, what God is saying, almost instantly uh, Adam understands the grammar and the syntax. So uh, and then we have um, Hebrews 11.3, By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God. That again gets back to this idea of communication, thought, reason, logic, all of which is, um, is there. So, then we go to point two. Point one was in the mind of God there already existed, a vocabulary, syntax, and grammar. Point two, God then is eternally a rational, thinking, logical being. When John is boiling the second person of the Trinity down to the core, core essence, he uses the word logos. In the beginning was the logos. At the very core of God, then, he is a rational, thinking, logical being. Now, that doesn't mean he is some sort of a, you know, computer motherboard. But he is, everything that he thinks is logical, and he is, he is thinking, and he comprehends and understands everything in a totally different kind of knowledge than we have. We have a, a learned knowledge, an accumulated knowledge. God has a, has an in, eternally instant, simultaneous awareness of everything. Third point, God created human beings in his image, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. God said, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. Now, we've studied that, and there's a lot of significant aspects to that that, that, that has to do with his representing God on the planet, has to do with his makeup of uh, physically and mentally, I think. Uh, not physically in that God looks like we do, but there's a significance to that that we studied in the past. But what I want to bring out in our study tonight is this implies at the very least that God is creating man as a harmonious responder to him in terms of creation. So that if God is the transmitter, man is created with the proper receiver that is set to the right uh, frequency so that when God speaks, man can listen. Now, the implications of that for language and meaning and understanding and interpretation are just profound in today's culture because man today wants to presuppositionally reject order, meaning, significance, and that you really can understand what other people say and what other people mean. 
And yet, and it's because of their starting point, and we'll get to that uh, eventually. So this implies that there's a harmony of communication, that man from its very inception could understand uh, God and could communicate. This indicates that there's an innate quality that is both uh, hardwired into man in terms of the physical makeup of his brain, and then there is a software, using, using a computer analogy, there is a software that is uh, loaded there that enables him that it, to interact with the, the hardware, his brain, and properly understand and interpret what God says. That can't be the product of any kind of evolution, and evolutionists recognize this. Let me see, get, get the right quote up here. Uh, Terence Deacon, in a book on linguistics, which is entitled Symbolic Species, says in relationship to the brain, which is the hardware that God has given man for language and understanding communication, says, Look, looking more closely, we will discover that a radical re-engineering of the whole brain is taking place. And what he's talking about is between animals and man, that the human brain is radically re-engineered. Now, how does that happen in evolution if every little thing happens slowly and gradually as a product of time and chance? There's just this radical difference. There's no indication anywhere on the planet of any other creature that is in this kind of transition zone in terms of the brain, which is the fundamental uh, unit for communication and for, for, for speech. Look at this other quote. He talks about... Uh, the development of language, and he says, in this context, then, consider the case of human language. It's one of the dis most distinctive behavioral adaptations on the planet. That's his uh, evolution speaking there, that it's just a gradual learning thing. He says, language has evolved in only one species. wonder why. In only one way. Wow, only one species in one way. Uh, I think that happened by chance. Without precedent except in the most general sense. That's, you know, people will come up when I talk about this, and I'll say, well, what about this chimpanzee or orangutan out in San Diego they taught sign language to, and what about this other chimp that they did? Even evolutionists reject that as, as any kind of language. It is so primitive, and what they're doing is so radically different from what humans are doing that you really can't compare the two. Only somebody whose breadth of knowledge is what they read in a National Geographic would ever think that there's a similarity between the two because you're just being propagandized. But the evolutionists, the linguistics, who are who, the, the few that are willing to even think about this and write about it recognize that there's no comparison between uh, a, uh, an orangutan learning sign language and what a 18-month-old human baby can do with language, that they're just radically different. Okay, this implies a couple of different things about the human brain. Man is, has the hardware that's unique to man for language. No other creature has what man has other than an angel, and we can't exactly evaluate what they have. Second thing is that scientists have observed that in terms of the physical hardware, that language pretty much operates on the left hemisphere of the brain. This was first discovered by Mark Dax in 
36 by observing that people who had trouble speaking usually had brain damage to the left side of the brain. Later in 1861, you had a uh, man by the name of Paul Broca, doctor, described a patient who could utter only one particular word. And when that patient died, he Broca went in and examined his brain and discovered that there was significant damage to the left frontal cortex, the area in green that's up on the slide on the overhead. And what he and so that area of the brain was named after him and it's called Broca's area. What he noted was that patients who had damage to this area, while they can understand language, they're unable to produce speech. See, the comprehension, understanding of language takes place somewhere else in the brain. But it's in this area of the brain that, that speech takes place. And the other area that I have uh, that's highlighted in the, in the picture up there is Wernicke's area. And in 1876, Carl Wernicke, probably pronounced Wernicke because he sounds German, discovered that language problems also could result from damage to this section of the brain. But when damage occurred here... It resulted in an inability to understand language, although the individual could still utter words. They weren't strung together in a way that made sense, but he could still speak and articulate different words. They were just randomly strung, <laughs> strung together. Uh, so in most people, both of these areas are found, uh, 97% of people, both of these areas of the brain are found in the left hemisphere. So what can we conclude from this when we look at this from a biblical presuppositional uh, framework? That God designed a brain that, would, that, that functioned in different areas for processing and then communicating language. That when you're involved with language, this involves seeing, it involves hearing, and then it involves Speaking And each one of these activities takes place in different areas of the brain. For example, if you read something, then that is going to be processed through first in the visual cortex, and then it has to be uh, transmitted from the visual cortex to the uh, speech area of, of uh, Wernicke's area. And from there, information will travel to Broca's area, and then to the primary motor cortex to uh, develop the necessary muscular contractions in the voice box, in the larynx, to produce the right sounds. So you have all of these things coming together simultaneously 30 seconds after God asks Adam a question, and he first speaks. He hears it. It's processed in one part of the brain. That information is sent to another part of the brain. Then that is sent to the motor controlling parts of the brain that send a signal to the vocal cords, and then he speaks. And all that just happened by chance. You know, God just sort of took these parts or nothing happened, and it just all these things just, just fell out by chance, which is what evolution says. And that is... Important to understand that if you talk about language as a believer and you're listening to somebody who is an evolutionist talk about language, you're not talking about the same thing. And that ultimately, if, if, if everybody works out all their presuppositions and you're pushed to the limit, you're going to end up with some real uh, conflict. And I'll talk about that in just a second. So what we see is that 
the hearer, as God created Adam, he hears and immediately comprehends the meaning and understands it. Now, this is a remarkable thing that happens in the brain, and I was thinking about a difficult scenario just to show the incredible complexity of what God created. You have three, three different groups in, of humanity. You have the, the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so you have really, th- in, a, in a broad sense, three different language groups. So we're going to take an example that could, could conceivably happen. In the 1930s, there were a number of Jews that escaped from uh, Nazi-controlled Germany and Austria and went to Shanghai. Well, let's assume you have a uh, Hebrew-speaking Jew living in Shanghai who marries a Mandarin-speaking Chinese wife. And after World War II, they immigrate to America, and they have a child. And this child is going to grow up in a trilingual environment. This child is going to be hearing an Asian language or Hamitic language that is radically different from the other two languages he's going to learn. He's got an Asian language to learn, in contrast to Hebrew, which he's hearing from another parent, and the environment around him, Hebrew is a Semitic language, and the environment around him is a Japhetic language group speaking English. And yet, by the time this infant is two years old, he can, his brain is able to sort the vocabulary into each of those three different language groups. And he already has a rudimentary understanding of the grammar and syntax, and he's isolated those grammar and syntax rules to each of those language groups. And he's done that by the time he's two years old. And he can already understand the meaning of what is, what is said uh, in, in rudimentary sentences in each of those particular languages. That's the incredible uh, gift of language that God has given and the way he has structured the brain. This can't just happen. There's so many different components. This can't just happen with a roll of the dice. Now, we have, we've established it from the get-go. From the very beginning, God has established and created man with the ability to clearly and immediately comprehend and understand what God says and to repeat it back to him, to communicate. So language is present in a pre-fall, uncluttered environment. Now turn to Genesis chapter 3, and we see that at the very beginning of the spiritual warfare battle in the human race, it focuses on language and meaning and interpretation. And you have a serpent... And this is a literal serpent who's indwelt by Satan. There are some, uh, many evangelical scholars today who, who, uh, you know, the, the definition of a PhD sometimes is it's somebody who, who um, uh, so educated that he believes things that no one else would believe. And so they believe that uh, this was just a snake. Now, Revelation 12 tells us that this is a serpent indwelt by Satan. And this serpent speaks. He comes along and says to the woman, Has God indeed said? See, the point of the temptation questions the communication of God and the comprehension and interpretation, what we call hermeneutics, of the creature. And he says, Has God really said this, that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the only difference between what he says and what God said is the word not which is a two-letter word in the Hebrew. He just inserts that. So uh, he completely twists what God is saying 180 degrees by the insertion of one 
a simple, simple word. And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. What she do? She added to what God said. See, all this comes down to comprehension and language. If you, you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Just the insertion of the word not. You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So at the temptation, it centers around language and the distortion of meaning. Now, let's see a little application of this. We believe that God has inspired every word of Scripture, that God is sovereign enough and omnipotent enough to control the environment so that as the writer of Scriptures wrote what they wrote, that God so superintended or controlled the writers of Scripture that without interfering with their own personalities, their own education, their own background, their own um, emotions, that God is able to guarantee that what they wrote was without error. Down to the minutia of the text. It is without jot or tittle. Everything in the text, every jot and tittle of the text will come to pass, Jesus said. A jot is it was a, the Hebrew letter yod, which is very small. It looks about like our apostrophe. It's just a very tiny letter. But if you change just one letter or just one, one, uh, one letter in a word, it can change the whole meaning of the word. A tittle is just a part of a, a word, like the leg on a, on a... If you put the leg on a P, it turns it into an R, where there's a difference between pun and run. And the difference is made up by just that little stroke. So what Jesus is saying, that, that, those little strokes and those small letters indicate uh, grammatical things such as tense and voice and mood and number and all the different things that are important so that you have arguments in Scripture that are based on the fact that a word just is in, either in the plural or in the singular and shows that God means what he says and it's important to pay attention to these details in the text. And that is being attacked. And so you had this rise of a battle that's occurred over the last hundred years on, on the, in what we'd call the inerrancy and infallibility of the Scripture. And 150 years ago, you just had to say, we believe that the Bible is God's Word. Now, it wasn't long before you had to say, well, to say the same thing, you had to say, we believe that the Bible is the infallible Word of God. Then that wasn't good enough. People said, well, it can be infallible, but that doesn't mean that every word is inspired. So you had to say, we believe in the verbal inspiration of Scripture. And then people, after a while, challenged that liberal theologian, challenged that and said, well, it can be verbally inspired, but not every word is equally inspired because there are some errors here. So you had to add, well, we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the infallible Word of God. And then after a while, people started getting around that, and it wasn't enough to say that. So you'd have to say that we believe in the inerrancy of the original autographs. That's the original writings, not the translations. We believe in the inerrancy of the original autographs and the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible and the Word of God is infallible and accurate in everything that it addresses. So we have to say all this now just to replace the old phrase, we believe the Bible is the Word of God. And all this is because Satan continually attacks 
the text. Now, you go around the country today and you come to numerous evangelical seminaries and the professors and the seminaries all have doctrinal statements that affirm the inerrancy of the text. In fact, you have an organization known as the uh, Evangelical uh, Theological Society, which is made up of mostly Bible college professors and seminary professors and a number of pastors. Uh, and they, the one thing, the, I think you have two things you have to agree to in their doctrinal statement. Number one is a Trinitarian view of God, and number two, that you believe in, that the Bible is inerrant in the original, in the original autographs. But there's so many professors who believe it's inerrant, but that's only theoretical because one of the corollaries of inerrancy is, is sufficiency, that you don't need to know other things. You don't need to know sociology in order to go out and plant churches. Oh, no, 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 no. We need to know sociology. We need to go out and take demographic uh, uh, polls and all this other stuff so that we know where to plant the church in the right area, and we need to study marketing and all this other stuff. No, we believe in the sufficiency of te- the text, sufficiency of the Bible in solving the problems you face. Whatever the problems are that you face in your life, the Word of God is sufficient. That means you don't have to go get a degree in counseling or psychotherapy or a master's in social work in order to help people. There's not a problem that anybody you know faces that isn't solved by dependence on the grace of God and the power of God, the Holy Spirit. That's the sufficiency of Scripture. And... Uh, the Bible means what it says it means, and that's uh, called hermeneutics or interpretation. But seminary professors get around the literal meaning of the text by coming up with all kinds of convoluted hermeneutical systems, and they destroy, even though they say on the one hand that they believe in verbal plenary inspiration, the inerrancy of Scripture, they destroy it with their hermeneutics. Because this is just theoretical. And how they interpret the text often destroys the real power and meaning of the text. So uh, it's all bound up together. And that's, and, but Satan attacks again and again. You can't really understand God. You can't really know what God has to say. It's too complex. I've had people who've been sitting under doctrinal teachers for decades say, well, no, there's some things you can't really understand. Really? God didn't figure out how to get around that? Where have you been all your life? But see, that's how we suppress the truth in unrighteousness, is by saying, well, you can't really be sure just because you don't like it. Now, what happens after the fall in Genesis 3 is the eyes of both of them are open in verse 7. Notice in verse 8, they heard, there's the auditory aspect, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, and the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? Notice, even after he sinned, and with the effects of carnality on the thinking and on the mind of Adam, he still could understand and interact with God. And so there's this conversation, and then God explains what the consequences of sin are going to be, and that's the fall. So we've gone through creation, we go to the fall, and he outlines what the results of the fall are. Now, I pointed this out to you before when we went through this, that you have to understand the fall in light of the original commands that took place in Genesis chapter 1. Man was created to be the representative and ruler over creation back in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. In Genesis chapter 2, man was set uh, over the garden. God put him in the garden and commanded him to 
not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge and of good and evil. Man was placed in the garden to guard it and keep it. And he was given a helper to assist him. The woman is called an Aetzer. And women today have been brainwashed by our society to think that being an assistant to a man is a demeaning position. But the only other person in all of Scripture ever described as an Aetzer or a helper or an assistant is God. So if you want to say being an assistant is a demeaning position, then you've just blasphemed God, which is what's at the root of the whole modern feminist movement. And it is an affront to God, and it is an attack on creation because of the way they view the role of women, that women are supposed to be equal. That means they do the same thing that men do. That is not what equality means. And so once again, they've attacked and distorted the meaning of language and destroyed it so that communication becomes difficult. So what happens is that we have all these mandates taking place in the perfect environment before the fall, and at the fall, it affects every one of those same areas, that instead of being ruler over creation, he has li- they've listened, the ruler has listened and obeyed the serpent. So there is a judgment now on the creation or on the animals that the serpent is cursed more than all the cattle. That little word more indicates that the cattle were also cursed. The serpent's cursed more. So the animal kingdom... Uh, is affected by Adam's sin. Uh, they were told to multiply and fill the earth prior to the fall, and now that mandate is going to be hindered by pain. The woman is going to have pain in in childbirth. In verse 16, I'll great, greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you will bring forth children. Now, she was supposed to be a helper, and there was supposed to be a certain teamwork between the man and the woman that was unhindered by arrogance and self-centeredness and everything else. And now both of them are self-centered because they want to be, they both want to be little gods. And, uh, there's going to be a problem. And at the end of verse 16, God says to the woman, your desire shall be for your husband. That's a word that means a desire to dominate and control. It's not a, not a word for physical or, uh, sexual or emotional desire and said instead he shall rule over you he shall dominate you the war of the sexes the woman's going to want to dictate policy in the home and the man's going to want to stomp it into her and that is uh, only reversed by grace and by regeneration and by the application of of the principles in Ephesians chapter chapter 5 that husbands are to love your wives as Christ loved the church he didn't stomp things uh, into the church the bride of Christ, and women are to be submissive to their husbands as unto the Lord. So it's, that model always goes back to your relationship with God in both cases, and that's how the curse is rolled back to a degree in marriage when there's application of doctrine. The man was also to rule, to, to watch over, to guard and keep the garden, and now the ground is going to be cursed in verse 17. Uh, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it. See, he still worked it before you had labor prior to the fall, but now production is toilsome. There's a hindrance. There's a there's an interference now because of a fallen environment. And then there'll be physical death. Physical death isn't mentioned until ver- verse. Uh, oh well, the earth also brings forth thorns and thistles. That's part of uh, making it difficult to earn a living. 
and verse 19, uh, you have physical death you, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That's the first mention of physical death. So that's a result of sin. Now, let me just skip a couple of those. Then we get into the fourth chapter, and we see the development of the human race. The descendants of Adam through Cain are outlined in chapter 4, and the descendants through his son Seth are, are listed in chapter 5. In chapter 4, we see the outworking of sin in the two, first two sons of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. Cain wants to impress God with his own works. Abel wants to follow God's instructions to bring a blood sacrifice. So Cain gets jealous because God accepts Abel's sacrifice. Cain kills Abel, and then he is uh, he becomes a vagabond and a wanderer. He is history's first homeless person. And we see civilization, many aspects of civilization develop, uh, civilization and technology develop in his descendants. The development of metallurgy, the development of animal husbandry, the development of music, many of these things are developed. That doesn't mean that because they came from his, his side that there's something wrong with them. It is, they're demonstrating their, the fact that they're still in the image of God. And this is working itself out in, in their own lives. And after uh, in Genesis chapter 5, we have the descendants of Adam. This is the book of the history of Adam. In the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, blessed them, called them mankind in the day they were created. But what we have following this is that Adam is going to live 130 years, have another son, Seth, and uh, this son is in the image of God? Yes, but text says in the image of Adam. Why? Because he is a sinner. That original imago dei, the image of God, has been marred now by sin. It's still there. Now, there's some who will say, no, it's not there anymore. No, it's still there. It's just been distorted and corrupted by sin. And what happens in by the end of Genesis chapter 5 is that mankind has degenerated and deteriorated so much that they are beginning to interbreed with angelic or de actually demonic interlopers, the sons of God, which is a term for uh, angels, fallen angels in this case. Uh, in Genesis 6-2, see the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. They took wives for themselves as all whom they chose. And the result of this in verse 4 is that there are Nephilim born on the earth. This is, uh, Nephilim isn't a technical term. Uh, unfortunately, I think there are some who tried to make it that way. Nephilim is a term basically for monsters or giants. It's a it's a it's a somewhat general word, and the all it's saying is that the offspring of this this half breed union between the demonic uh, sons of God and the uh, daughters of men is that they created this monstrous half breed race that threatened to destroy the genetic purity of the human race. And if the genetic purity of the human race were destroyed, then this would prevent God from following up on his original promise in Genesis 3.15 when he had outlined the curse. There's hope there. And he says to the woman, I'm going to put in between between you. He says to the serpent, I'm going to put in between between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your seed, the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the woman. 
And that's important to trace out that terminology, the seed of the woman, because there's, a, there's kind of this odd thing there. It is the male who produ- produces the seed or sperma, not the woman. So there's this, this odd thing there that is indicated in this prophecy. It's the first mention of the gospel and says that uh, the seed of the woman will bruise the head, fatal wound of the serpent, but the serpent would bruise his heel. And so we trace out this seed thing and the attack, the genetic attack on the human race in Genesis chapter 6 is designed to keep the seed from coming. And so there has to be a worldwide judgment in order to preserve the purity of the human race. doesn't mean that everybody on the planet had succumbed, but it does mean that everyone except for one family, eight people in one family were believers and had rebelled against God. A large number of them had already become involved in this genetic corruption, and it had reached sort of a, a critical mass. If it were allowed to continue any more, it would destroy the genetic purity of the human race, and so God interfered with the worldwide flood. And that's the next event, and we'll come back and talk about that. And the, 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 we've looked at the creation of the fall. We'll look at flood and the Tower of Babel uh, next time. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded that the language is important, the study of your word is important, that the very fact that we call it your word emphasizes language. And the language and our understanding is often corrupted by our own arrogance, our own negative volition, our own desire to suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but it is uh, through God the Holy Spirit that we come to understand truth. You've freely given us the ability to understand truth as believers and to uh, completely understand what your word says. We pray that as we continue to study that your word would uh, be rooted deeply into our lives and that it would spring forth great abundant life in our own spiritual lives. We pray this in Christ's name.